Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Psychology 360 podcast. Today, I have with me Robert Bonomo, who is a filmmaker, blogger, novelist, and esotericist. He furthermore works as a lecturer in Tunis and has been traveling the world and uh, has been making some beautiful documentary films and writing books. And I have to say his, his latest documentary is called Twilight of the Archons. And I came about it by a suggestion of the YouTube Algos and Archons that uh, suggested to me his previous movie, The 21 Faces of God, and led me down this rabbit hole of looking at Bonomo's work. So, Robert, welcome on the show. Thanks a lot for having me on. Yeah, it's it's my pleasure, and I wanted to ask you, um, how did you get how did you get interested in this uh, archetypical analysis? And tell tell the audience a little bit about yourself, your your hobbies and passions. Sure, I think with me it all began when I was um, a teenager. I had a serious car accident, and um, having been raised in a very Catholic family. Um, what my mother did was send me to a Catholic priest who was also a Jungian analyst. Um, and uh, it was Father Jerome Radloff, who had studied in Switzerland. So he had actually had contact with those second generation Jungians. Like he had met Maria Louise von Franz. Um, he had met, um, I think he had met Edinger, Jaffe, that, that crew, the second sort of generation, you know? Wow. Yeah, I'm familiar also with Sigmund Hurwitz. I think he was in that camp. He, yeah, he could have been. He could have been. Um, th there, was a, there was a pretty, pretty large group, no? Um, and having had contact with him, he opened up a world for me that was just completely new, completely new, of, of who was young, what was culture in general. You know, he really opened my mind to classical music. Um, I remember the first albums he gave me, you know, were those uh, Deutsche Grammophon, von Karajan, uh, you know, the... Um, Berlin Philharmonic with, with, with the, the, the last six symphonies of, of Mozart, that kind of thing. That was the type of music that I had really hadn't had a lot of exposure to. Mm -hmm. And uh, my father was a Beethoven fanatic, but that was it. He was one of those old school guys. He had like six albums and that was it, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's, uh, I can relate to that. I'm also a big fan of Beethoven. But I also dig uh, Mozart sometimes. And that, by the way, that's a fascinating... Uh, story like after the car accident so you were you were recovering physically and you were sent to this priest and uh for for what for counseling or to put purpose in in your life after the shock what, what was the situation yeah uh, unfortunately a young lady had been killed um oh, wow. in the car accident mm -hmm. god bless her soul and and so there was a lot of guilt i think involved and also dealing with death at that age yeah, especially when one has a certain level of responsibility, you know. Right. Well, that's yeah. Well, oh, those are difficult issues. 
Mm -hmm. Yeah, that sounds like a really, uh, really hard uh, issue and one of your uh, landmarks, landmark experiences. Uh, now, the mix, I, I have to say, I can relate. I have a good friend uh, who is a, an old Catholic priest who is also very involved within not the Jungian, but the psychosynthesis uh, yes. school, which is mm -hmm. derived from Jung. And it's actually Italian. It's from Roberto Sagioli, who was a great... Um, right. Sagioli, right? Sagioli, yeah. yeah. And uh, he's, he also combined this kind of uh, esoteric Christianity to this Jungian and um, psychosynthesis uh, wave of, um, of psychology, which is hand in hand. So, and tell me a little bit more, like uh, how, how that, um, well, how that impacted you and what doors it opened. Oh, I mean, I think what it really did was it opened up the dream world. Hmm. Because up to that point, you know, we have dreams, but I'm not sure we really give them much significance. But being in contact with a Jungian analyst, you actually go into the dreams. And I think a lot of people would, would, would say that that first contact with someone from a Jungian background, you do get those very powerful dreams, especially in adolescence. They seem to be dreams that are transpersonal in the sense where they, they might have a personal, they might be a reflection of something in your personal life, but they also reflect something in the bigger, in the bigger picture. And to make those associations, um, and also the, the idea of archetypes, what are archetypes and what do they mean, the collective of unconscious, it really expands, I think, the religious upbringing it transcends it from being something entirely exoteric to it, it sort of opens the window into the esoteric of religion mm -hmm. yeah absolutely and i think that's an important point as well of the suggestion and opening up the human mind to other possibilities and giving a certain weight to dreams and then living these kind of dreams and seeing, you know, that maybe, you know, we are the story we tell ourselves. And in terms of religion and uh, specifically like uh, Christianity, Catholicism has some amazing art, which is, I mean, it, it's transcendental for even somebody who's not uh, Christian can go to a, one of the cathedrals in uh, Prague, for example, and just be, you know, just feel a presence which is sure. the architecture and just the stories and the, the art. But so, yeah, that's fascinating. And, you know, I'm glad I'm speaking with you because lately in the last few weeks, I did, I've had a lot of, a few insights on the psychological level, hmm. um, on the story itself, the meaning of story. Yeah. And of narratives in general. And, I think the insight I've had is our identity is completely enmeshed in the stories we tell ourselves and the collective stories we tell ourselves. Mm -hmm. And as we begin to unravel those stories, 
they they almost unravel infinitely you know there's an infinite unraveling and there does come a point where where is our identity within those stories where do we i exist in those stories and that can be a that's that's some deep rabbit hole well yeah absolutely i think that the and, and this is actually one of the uh, approaches that I personally use when I'm doing counseling with others is to figure out the narrative, the story. And this is also kind of a Jungian idea in a way in that, you know, life in itself and the, the way we live life doesn't necessarily have to be a journey. But if we uh, decide to make it a journey, then it becomes so. So in terms of the collective uh, mind and the collective reality, the greater, you know, the, the stories are extremely important. And you mentioned that the, the topic or the notion of the I, what does it mean to be an individual? Is this, um, you know, is this a, an important factor in, in life? Or how do you identify? How do you uh, identify in terms of your relations, your, your love? What do you, how do you answer that, Robert? You know, the, the, what, what's happened to me is I've understood that these stories point us to narratives, personal narratives, no? Mm -hmm. But as we dig deeper into these personal narratives, I think and, and this is just a, this is a very personal experience, probably based on a recent interest in Advaita and Vedanta and sort of the Eastern look at it. That the final destination is there is no narrative. Mm. The, the, the narratives lead us to the final narrative, which is no narrative. Mm. And it's all it's in that no narrative. And that's where I think you can kind of get a connection to the collective unconscious. When Jung talked about the collective unconscious, what was he really pointing to? And my guess is there is no narrative. The final narrative is that there is no narrative. Hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. I and guess... Sorry, sorry, just to, for the listeners to, to uh, understand the Advaita uh, understanding is one of non-duality, right? One of ultimate unity, but uh, in a sense where all is, is illusion, right? There's this understanding of, it's almost like the ancient sophist idea, but more in practice. And correct me if I'm wrong. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, I see what you mean. Um, you mean that when you say sophist, what do you mean? I mean, in the ancient sense with the sophist, the, the, um, the final, let's say the essence of the sophist was this idea of it's all kind of an illusion that we're living ah, Like sophistry. Yes, yes, yeah. yes. Yeah. Which I've never been too fond of, but I can understand you know how there is some truth to that because if you look at for example the grail myth mm -hmm. 
which was so important to to Young. And it's very interesting if how how interested are you in Jungian thought? Pretty pretty interested. I mean, I'm I'm not uh, I'm not a Jungian expert, but I do have uh, the Red Book and various of his writings, and uh, I do appreciate it in terms of understanding uh, art, maybe religious stories, but in terms mm-hmm. of uh, practice and in my everyday life, I do appreciate the mystical, but I'm more of a pragmatist. Sure, sure. Um, and, and it was just in the, in the Grail, there, there's the, the interesting part of the Grail story with Jung is his wife, Emma, didn't let him pursue that because she wanted to write the book. Hmm. And her book on the uh, on the Grail myth is quite interesting, um, what is, what is but it's it's that he wasn't allowed. That she said, "No, let me pursue this." And then finally, she died before it was finished, and uh, Maria Louise von Franz finally finished it. Hmm. But I think from a, from say a, a cognitive um, point of view. I think what happens is we work on our personal stories. Would you agree with that? Yes, absolutely. We have narratives and that what we do is we tweak them, tweak them, adjust them, maybe um, abandon some to create a narrative that allows us to live more or less um, stable, happy lives. Mm I mean, would that be fair? Yeah, absolutely. I I agree with that, and I would say that these and, and indeed what you what you talk about, for example, in your in your uh, film, and you you make the collages of this this uh, place where at where we're kind of losing a collective narrative. I think it is something that is giving many people a sense of anxiety, a sense yeah. of meaninglessness. And uh, we see a crisis. So yes, I agree with that. And I think that's one of the crises of, of modern man. And, and Jung talked about this a lot. And I think a lot of people have. You know? mm-hmm. um, the existentialists, I think, were, were very clear in this. That as we lose those collective narratives, what narrative do we fall back on? Yeah. We have what uh, Bauman, Sigmund Bauman calls the great regression. Mm-hmm. And I, I know you, you've uh, mentioned some of these possible regressions of uh, tribalism and um, what we see a lot of, of these uh, identity politics, right? Yeah. Which, um, which are, yeah, which are a kind of uh, a regression in a way because we... We have, uh, you know, it's it's hard to it's hard to relate to others when they are categorizing and putting each other in a box as much as possible to define themselves. And um, I think that's a yeah, that's a very sad uh, part and hopefully temporary uh, collective idea that a lot of Western uh, peoples are in, right? And I think a lot of it is positive. I mean, I see a lot of positive elements in in some of these um, 
sort of these buckets or subcultures of identity. For example, veganism. Mm -hmm. I see an enormous amount of, of really a lot of love and, and, and unity. And there's a lot of beautiful things within, I think, the vegan movement. Mm -hmm. And I'd love to engage with them because you, you see so much. But I think the, the issue with something like veganism is it lacks that capacity to, to expand and transcend just the vegan movement, to expand into something larger. No? Yeah, I, I would agree. I think that, and I think that going back to what you said before, in terms of collective narratives, and you said ultimately, you, you went and said ultimately there is no narrative, but I would say that um, certain, certain archetypes and certain stories uh, transcend cultures. And if you connect the vegan movement, for example, and you, you had, um, let's say a Buddhist vegan movement, a Christian vegan movement, which you have now, or yes. Jewish movement, these all have um, ancient stories and, uh, you know, ways of making meaning in the world that have worked for millennia. Right, so, right. Yeah, so, and, and so some things work and others don't work. And, and so, yeah, this right. And so I, I agree. I, I agree with that. Like in terms of veganism, there's this. Maybe it's it's uh, compassion, which which gives it uh, which gives it fuel or which leads it. But then, and then it be, if it becomes too niche and uh, closed off, then it can create. You know, uh, it, it becomes another echo chamber. Exactly, it becomes an echo chamber, and it lacks that that ability to. Like, isn't it, isn't within Judaism, wasn't there a story between Cain and Abel where one was, one, one was a herded animals and the other did agriculture? Mm -hmm. Yes, absolutely. You know, you could tie it back to something like that or, and, and then at the same time, you could tie it back to something within, say, Advaita, where we're all one soul yeah. and there's one consciousness and then into Buddhism, and then certain elements of Christianity, right? Especially the Gnostic Christianity. Yes. You know, I think that kind of mixture is what we're, what we're lacking. Um, but I do think it's possible. I do think it's possible, but we need, we need a grand, we need a, a new grand myth that somehow can tie this all together. And it would include social justice because a lot of these movements in social justice are coming from a place of love. Mm -hmm. I, I really do think they are. Um, but what's happening is they're, they're, they're coalescing into these sort of uh, very rigid uh, ideologies and dogmas, which is exactly what we don't want. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and, and often we see, uh, I, I see with, for example, in the United States, with uh, secularism rising, uh, you have these, and you have now this, these uh, censorships and, and things like that, which to me are kind of like the ghosts of the Puritans, the ghost of Puritanism coming back. 
into a, a secular expression. It's like, uh, it's quite bizarre. But yeah, I, I completely, I completely agree uh, with that. And um, in terms of what you're saying, and this is, but in terms of a new, you mentioned like we're, we're at this point where, you know, the old stories are no longer relevant for many people. Um, and we need a new, a new story, a new mythos, but it needs to work. It needs to be something based on the book of nature. Uh, Cause all the stories you mentioned, even the, the, the Bible often references cycles of nature and it, it encompasses human nature. You know, it talks about betrayal. It talks about jealousy and a reconciliation, right? And I don't see much happening that, like I see many movements, but I don't see uh, this kind of new Christianity, for example, that shook up the Roman Empire. I don't know. Right. What do you think about that? Yeah, I, I think... I think what we need is a new, it, it, obviously it has to be something beyond Christianity. It has to be a new myth that, that can shake up this entire world community because we have become a world community. Yeah. I mean, I've lived in China. I've lived in, I mean, lived and worked, you know, actually, you know, Called a plumber, gone to work, gotten taxis in China, Argentina, Spain, Italy, Ireland, Southeast Asia, Russia, Tunisia. So, I mean, I've been around the world. And we are very slowly, but not that slowly, becoming a world community. And this new myth, you know, you can't invent a myth. And myth, myths emerge like brands emerge. They just kind of pop up and they resonate. Yeah. I, I think we have to be optimistic that something will emerge. Um, but I, I don't think we have any idea what it is <laughs> at this point. <laughs> yeah, no, that's a, that's a good point. And I like, because you asked before, like in terms of the collective unconscious, how is it? interpreted but what you just said is one of the ways i would interpret myths aren't invented no. they're already there they're like uh it, we are we draw from the collective unconscious these forms and this cup goes down to metaphysics in a way but it's it's basically like what what you say in the twilight of the archons about you know does is it matter that generates consciousness or consciousness generating matter um, you know, does the idea create the form or the form the idea? So uh, I'm of I'm of the more metaphysical uh, camp, and also because of personal experiences, I, I I have this view. Yeah, and what's that whole idea? That scientific idea about paradigm shifts. I'm forgetting the man, the gentleman's name who wrote that book. Um, that you know, it, it takes a generation of scientists to die. Oh, uh, wasn't that uh, wasn't that William James back in the day? No, but there's a there's another scientist who wrote that that whole book about 
Scientific Paradigms. It's a fascinating book. Was it Sagan? No. Um, it'll come to me. All right. Um, I'll, I can just Google it in a second. But mm -hmm. I think th th there's a time when the, the old generation does need to kind of pass before mm -hmm. we're going to be able to come up with um, a, a new, a new, a new myth. Mm. And I think underneath that myth will be consciousness. If, mm. if we reach a point where we can understand that consciousness is primary, then I think we will have something of the beginning of a, um, oh, Thomas Kuhn, that's who it was. Okay, okay, yeah. Um, well, something will emerge from that. And I think science is getting to the point where you can't deny it. And I put in the Twilight of the Archives that I think it's a wonderful quote from uh, Max Planck where you, you cannot get behind consciousness. There's no way to do it. Mm -hmm. There's no way to observe consciousness from beyond consciousness. Right. I mean, we are fish in water and the best word we're going to do is describe the water as fish. Yeah. Yeah, that's... And once we accept that, it's, I, I think that's something that we're generally getting to the point where we will accept. I think the new paradigm will come from that, that as, as, if we can accept that consciousness is primary, it's, it's how we experience reality. From that, something could emerge, I think. Yeah, yeah, definitely. But I have to say, uh, and, and here we're giving uh, an optimistic take, but <clears throat> your book, I'm sorry, your, your film um, also shows some of the darker sides and some of the shadow sides of this global culture and uh, globalization in general, which has, which has been led primarily by uh, this sort of capitalism and uh, advertising and manipulation uh, which yeah. you know, you, you talk about identity. Well, uh, you you have uh, you have some uh, snippets of of uh, or sections of the film by Adam Curtis there, uh, the century of self. And to me, like uh, you know, a lot of the marketing and and um, and uh, PR that has been led by people like Edward Bernays is all about uh, forming this new kind of identity that is connected to products or, you know, uh, consumer behavior. Well, I mean, if we're honest about it, and I worked in digital marketing, mm -hmm. so I've worked with data and I, you know, about 10 years ago, and I often tell people, I was working at the time with, when we were fighting wars with muskets. <laughs> and when I look at the data that people have access to now, in the capacity of AI now, you know, I often say these guys are flying F-35s and I was shooting muskets. Right. Because what a lot of people don't realize is AI needs data. Just like, for example, example the Wright brothers needed the right size combustion engine mm -hmm. with enough power to get the plane off the ground. Um, 
for example, online music and video needed bandwidth. AI needed data. Remember for many years, people said, oh, AI, this is never going to work. This is never going to work. Yeah. Yeah, I do remember. It didn't work because there wasn't enough data. But now there is. Right. So we've been hacked. Our brains have been hacked. And we have to accept this. Completely hacked. And so if all we are are brains, we're done. Well, I mean, you, you mentioned this, like all this data, but the data is not just about brains. It's about behavior. And, um, you know, I have here uh, next to me uh, the book Beyond Freedom and Dignity by B.F. Skinner. And mm -hmm. uh, if you read uh, Walden Two and Beyond Freedom and Dignity, you get a model of, you know, if, if Skinner was still, was still alive and um, he had this data of people's behavior available, I think he would be, um, he would be working and helping the Chinese now make, a, you know, a very good uh, social credit system. Uh, because, I mean, ultimately, the dark side for me is this, like, if the AI has so much data on us, uh, surely it will create a system that continues to feed data and to reinforce certain types of uh, behaviors that some people would be happy to see, right, to have a, a complacent citizenry. Right, but underlying that complacency would be an unease. It would almost be like that Adam Curtis, you know, we, remember, uh, did you see Adam Curtis's latest uh, documentary? Yes, Can't Get You Out of My Head. Yeah, very interesting. I mean, I had some issues with it. I think he bit off a little bit more than he could probably chew. I wish, I wish he had focused it a little bit more. I agree, I agree. And some parts were too broad, yeah. Yeah, I think he, he kind of went off on some tangents, but that's okay because Adam Curtis is one of my heroes. I mean, I, my whole, my, both of my films were based on seeing the century of the self. I said, oh my God, I can make a film without having to shoot any, without any shoot any, any, you know, any film. I can just yeah. go into the archives, pick what I like, put in the music I like and thank God for YouTube that YouTube allows me to use copyrighted material as long as the copyright owners agree. Mm -hmm. So I don't monetize it. They monetize it, but I get to create stuff that, you know, when I was in film school, I went to NYU to school of the arts in the eighties to make that film in the 1980s, say twilight of the archons. It would have cost a fortune. And imagine the lawyers trying to get agreements with all the copyright holders. It would have been impossible. Right. YouTube has allowed me to do that. And I'm, I'm eternally, I know a lot of people like to trash YouTube, but I'm very grateful for the, the creative ability that, that YouTube has allowed me mm -hmm. um, to make a film like that. It's funny. It's um, funny. You mentioned Adam Curtis is one of your heroes. I've, uh, when I teach a, like courses such as cross-cultural psychology and speak about globalization and consumer culture, I often recommend and may show parts of 
of that film, The Century of Self, uh, to the students, because I think it's extremely relevant. I think Century of the Self is just a brilliant film. It's just absolutely brilliant. And to think he shot almost nothing. It was yeah. just all straight out of the BBC archives. Um, with his voiceover, it's, it's, it's an amazing, it's really sort of a new genre of film. And I think not enough people have caught on to that. Hmm. Yeah, it is, it is quite artistic. And by the way, you, you put great um, musical pieces, quite a nice selection and film selections. I really enjoyed, as I said, the, my favorite uh, film that, that you made is your first that, uh, that 21 Faces of God. And I wanted to ask you what, uh, what brought you to the tarot and uh, what, what, what uh, you know, got you interested in that side of uh, art and consciousness? Yeah, I think because um, I had gotten interested in the tarot for very practical reasons in the sense that I was looking for an, uh, a narrative arc for one of my novels. And wow. I thought, wow, you know, the 22 major arcana there is some, and this is not an original idea of mine. There are people who have written that it's actually a journey. The fool's journey. If you think of the fool as the hero, in a sense, no? And that's his journey. Yeah. Through the, that's why it's, that's why I call it the 21 faces of God, not the 22. No. Um, because the fool is really a liminal figure. He's between the major and the minor. And that's his, that's his spiritual journey. And so I thought, wow, you know, th there is something very profound in this. And the deeper I got into it, the more I realized these are just more than just 21 random archetypes. No, and, and, and the, the, the major arcana was developed you know, somewhere in the 14th, 15th century in Italy. Mm -hmm. So these would be, very important archetypes in that historic um, period. But the order of them is absolutely fascinating. When you look at what, what does the order of these cards mean? And I realized it was a journey. Um, and so it's really the hero's journey. And it's what's interesting is that film resonated a lot with psychologists, especially the youngians. Mm -hmm. And with the tarot people, they didn't like it so much. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah, it didn't, you, you, I'd be surprised, like the real tarot kind of people didn't seem to resonate. It didn't resonate with them because the beauty of the tarot, if you look at it without the woo-woo, Yeah. The tarot was a deck of cards developed by the Mamluks mm -hmm. for, it was a gambling. It was for just for gambling. You know? When it reached Italy, it became, it was still a game, but then somebody added on the, the 22 major arcana to make it a more complex game. So it continued as a game. And it really didn't become a tool for divination probably into the, the 17th century. 
Right. Yeah. And so, and so the beauty of the tarot is that it works on three levels. It works as a game of chance, like gambling. It works as a tool of divination. And then on its highest level, it really is a spiritual path. And the way it can work on those three levels, I think it, it's something very beautiful about it. And just a personal question, because I know a little bit about the history of the tarot and, uh, you know, going beyond the legends and uh, the myths about it, you know, it, it coming from ancient Egypt, there's no proof of that. But um, related to that, do you really believe in this? Uh, do, would you ever use it for divination? Because I know it was uh, traditionally not used for that purpose. So, and in psychology, there have been Jungians and other uh, psychologists who use it also as a uh, projective tool. So look at this card and tell me what you see yes. and you're projecting your feelings, your, your situation. What do you think? Do you, would you use it like that or to draw up synchronicities and things of that sort? Oh, I mean, as a tool of divin, I mean, let's look at divination itself. If we think about language now, I know this is very speculative, but most people think human language began somewhere between 30 and 50,000 years ago. So if Homo sapiens sapiens have been around for about 200,000 years, I think most anthropologists would say language probably emerged about 50,000 years ago, no? Okay. If we think about divination, I would, I would, and this, I have no evidence for this, but I would suggest that divination is probably as old as language itself. Hmm. In the sense, imagine a group of hunters yeah. and there's two ways to go. You can go around the left side of the mountain or the right side of the mountain. How do we decide? The idea of looking at the birds or killing an animal and looking at its, its entrails to see this, I think divination is absolutely as primary as language itself. Mm. Yeah. And divination is an incredibly powerful tool. Now, I used to work with a psychologist and occasionally what she would do is if she had um, a patient with a real dilemma, I can give you an example, actually. Mm -hmm. I, I think having an example is good. This was a middle-aged woman, I don't know, say in her 40s with a couple of kids, an attractive woman, um, incredibly unhappy, um, and just deep sadness. She was deeply sad, and she had met her first love by accident. So she is, here she is. In a marriage that's maybe not so happy, she meets her first love who happened to be a golf, a golf instructor who was a bit of an alcoholic. But by encountering this man, all of a sudden, her life just opened up. She felt joy, happiness, and she was really, really in a dilemma. What to do? And I never forget my, uh, my friend, she said, you know, I think this woman would really do her well 
to have a tarot reading. So when there is a question, a real dilemma, somebody who understands the cards and understands that it's not me, so as the reader, the interpreter of the cards, it's not me. We're, we're allowing the, the deck, the divination, you know, to do its stuff, and I simply interpret it. It can be very helpful, very helpful, hmm. especially if the patient buys into it a little bit. No, if they yeah, of course, it. of course, and the suggestion is always very important. yeah, uh huh, and, and you stay away from the fact that I am some sort of um, how can I say this? I, I have some kind of psychic ability. No, 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 no. It's it's the cards. You no, know? mm -hmm. we allow um, the oracle to do its work. I, as the reader, simply interpret it, and we work carefully with the querent on the question. So we really develop the question, we refine the question, we ask the oracle, the oracle gives the answer, and I help interpret the answer. That's it. It can be very helpful. It can be very helpful. Yeah, I really like your point also about the, uh, you know, the origin of language and the divination as being as old as that. It's almost like it was... You know, the, it's almost like magical thinking is as old as, uh, I think, human consciousness itself. But to me, my personal interpretation is also this, that in terms of the, the magic, um, if ancient, let's say ancient humans or a person today were to detach and uh, de, uh, let's, let's find the word, decondition Mm -hmm. from the everyday machinations of uh, society and life and were to meditate or take a big dose of psychedelics and reconnect, I believe that we are able to, I believe that we are able to uh, have states of consciousness which allow us to connect with others, with other entities, or and I'm speaking about, for example, animals, or feel the presence as well of uh, a tree or, you know, and, and be connected with nature, which we are ultimately a part of, but we've often, we often feel detached from it. And this is one of the uh, more destructive illusions that we have. Oh, absolutely. And I think there, the work of ethnogens is, is incredible what they can do. Yeah, I mean, it's incredibly powerful what the right psilocybin trip can do for somebody's consciousness. Right. And I know this sounds, this can sound radical, but I really believe that what it does is it, it and there is evidence, if I'm not mistaken, some from latest studies, when people take powerful ethnogens, what it does is it, it reduces that activity in the brain that sort of connects things? Yes, I, I believe that's correct. It's actually like there's, there's a reduced brain function, but yet there's all this stuff going on, which was a bit of a paradox for, for researchers. Right, and that research, I would encourage folks to look at that research because I'm explaining it poorly. 
but it's, it's the part of the brain that kind of puts it all together, that kind of orders it. The activity in that part of the brain goes down and you just get a real straight dose of, of reality itself. And reality itself is much weirder than most of us are willing to accept. Mm-hmm. Beyond, and I say weirder, I mean beyond logic. Yeah. Well, I, I would say here that one of the one of the pearls of wisdom uh, from the East, or I think in every tradition, is understanding the simple fact that you know we talk about words now, but if you want to get to an to the essence of something, words cannot ever do full justice to what you're talking about, right? You like uh, an animal, a person, or your essence can never be fully put into words, right? It's, it's beyond this. And, and there's something very profound in that because like you say, words are an abstraction. It's, yeah. it's one level beyond whatever we're looking at, you know? Mm-hmm. And when we string thoughts together, when we string words together, we create narratives. And those narratives are another level beyond and so when we get beyond the narratives and beyond the words the true contact with what is real is what i think most would consider the profound spiritual experience yeah and and that's what william james said i mean william james expressed it i think very well when he said most religion is believing in somebody else's spiritual experience. Mm -hmm. And how far will that get you? I'm afraid it won't get you that far. I would say it depends, but I mean, it depends on how people interpret how dogmatic they are again, right? If they give themselves space. Yeah. Um, but exoteric religion, I think, can only bring you so far. Mm-hmm. It's almost like climbing a mountain with a guide, and finally the guide says, look, the last part of the summit, you know, no walking stick, no tanks, it's up to you, go. And that takes a lot of courage. And, and even there, the way you, you just put that is is again, going back to what, what we said or what I said before about putting a journey like forward that you are making, like, and what do I mean by that? Like that you, like what you just described this kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy in some way, because not everybody um, will, will agree with this or, or decide or say, okay, this is part of the meaning of my life is to connect to a higher state of consciousness, right? I think it is for me, uh, but not everybody would agree. Some people are, are just uh, playing inside um, a pre-made uh, game or, or maybe they, they don't know or, or there's a complete nihilism, for example. Yeah. And look, if people are happy in their narratives and their narratives work, God bless them. I mean, I, I, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Yeah. I really don't. 
and society needs to needs to function. We need people who buy into narratives. But at some point, and I think the issue is the point we're having, I think one of our biggest cultural issues is midlife. Because the first half of life, I think, does need to be focused on practical narratives. Those narratives function for about the first 40 years. Marriage, social structures, um, social order, um, money, materialism. These things are important because we need a society that functions. Where I think we're having a problem is in the second half of life. We don't know what to do in that second half of life. Hmm. And, and you see this in very, I, I mean, you see it in a lot of older men who continue down the path of building this, uh, creating new families, the whole change the world thing. Changing the world is for young people. That's a young people's game. We should let them do that. I think we need to step back and uh, and offer some wisdom, offer some guidance, but let them play the game. Yeah, that's very interesting. And, and it, you know, what comes, the first thing that comes to my mind when you said that is this uh, meme or this uh, thing that may younger people share today in social media about boomers and making fun of boomers. Uh, mm -hmm. And maybe that was part of the boomer thing was to continue with young adulthood throughout life, have this revolutionary ideas throughout life. And I personally, when I, when I hear people saying that, I, I say, well, especially like these younger, like Gen Z, I think that uh, boomers and Gen Zers have a lot in common in terms of uh, how, how much they want to radically change things. So I think that's, we always, again, from a Indian perspective, we always find uh, more faults or things to to uh, dislike about those who are more similar to us than those who are much different to us, right? Yeah. It's interesting from a generational standpoint, the Gen Zs are actually in line with, in generational theory, more of the great generation. Oh, really? Yeah. This is fascinating. You get you because you go, you go, uh, great generation silent, um, boomers, Gen X, right. and that's the four seasons. And then you go back to the boomers, the ones who are going to have to confront, face on the crisis that's coming are the Gen Z's. Mm. Um, and it's, it's, it's interesting. The millennials are actually the silent generation. And you know how you can see the similarity is the millennials are very dogmatic. They kind of buy into a lot of traditional ideas from the boomers. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, the, the tr new traditions that boomers brought forward that, that were right. trying to dismantle the old, but they're now traditions, yeah. Exactly. It's like it's like they they've they've solidified with the boomer 
that the boomer generation, I think it's, gets a bad rap because they did so much. They changed so much. And the millennials really kind of, uh, you know, the Gen X is, the, the interesting thing about the Gen X is we kind of, we kind of pushed, we kind of became more libertarian, you know, mm. much more independent. We don't trust anybody. And, and you can see it in journalists. Sort of that Gen X journalist is the one like the Matt Taibis, the Glenn Greenwalds, the ones who are like, you know what, screw this. I'm going to Substack. You just mentioned two of my favorite journalists, by the way. I love those guys, and I have an enormous amount of respect for them. Yeah. Because there's always an element of honesty when they write. Right. And and I think um, the Gen Z, because I teach Gen Zs now. I, I'm a well, I guess you do too, right? You're yeah. a you're a uni lecturer, no? Yeah. And I actually like their energy. It's very fresh. Um, they're naive in a lot of ways, but I think in a lot of good ways. Mm-hmm. But they're, they give me a lot more hope than the millennials. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm, I am a millennial, so maybe you're right. Yeah. Sorry about that. <laughs> I'm sorry about the millennial fashion. Yeah, so... But, but anyways, you, you mentioned this crisis that they will have to face and this uh, energy that they have. But one of the things that, that to me is a little bit worrisome uh, when I see uh, Gen Zers is, uh, and one of the, when I teach, one of the things I do is I don't allow them to be on their phones at all unless they have some, mm-hmm. you know, some special condition or, or something else where they need to be uh, connected. But I just try to get them disconnected so that, you know, we can have a real uh, connection, right? A real conversation. And one of the things that I see that's worrisome is just how connected and how long they've been connected to these smartphones and to social media. And, you know, as Marshall McLuhan said, the medium is the mode. And when you are, you know, bombarding yourself with TikTok videos, making TikTok videos, or tweeting, uh, and, and that's the only reality or the primary way that, that you communicate with others. I, I think that's that can be quite uh, harmful. Simon, don't don't even get me on this topic because it it is as a teacher in a university environment as you are. You know, I did a podcast the other day. It was called 13 Questions. They give you 13 questions. Mm-hmm. And one of the questions was, what's the most important book you've ever read or most influential book? So I kind of played, I, I, before I did the podcast, I played the game with my students. And not one of them could, could mention a book that they had finished. Wow. Now, so one of them said, yeah, there's a great book I read. I can't remember the name of it. And I didn't finish it. These are 22-year-olds. Yeah. Now, you're an academic. I'm not, I'm not an academic. I'm just a lecturer. But, you know, I've, I've lived a, a pretty, I've read a lot. And, and just to, to, to look back and think, who would I be if I hadn't read those thousands of books? 
And it's a little terrifying because there's no depth. Um, it's, it's like you scratch the surface and, and there's nothing there. Right. And it's, it's, it's going to be an issue because you cannot learn on TikTok and Instagram and Yahoo news feeds like you can sitting down, you know, spending a week reading a, a serious book. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I agree. So where do you see the optics? Because I gave you the, I, you know, I, I gave you the pessimism. So I want to hear the, the optimism. <laughs> the optimism is that there comes a crisis with the phone. Like I gave up the smartphone and I feel like it's almost something I have to do. So when I go into class, I lift up my old grandpa Nokia dumb phone and I say, you know, this, you see this, this is why I can read, you know, a couple hours a day. Yeah. Yeah. I think they will reach a point where they realize how frustrating the, um, the apps are becoming like we had a discussion the other day about romance and you could see the sadness in them. And they kept telling me, teacher, it's different. Something's changed. Um, and we're just talking about, you know, romantic relationships, love. And of course, love has its sordid side and, and everything. But there was there is something deeply beautiful and transcendent about that falling in love, especially when you're young. And that's something that they're missing so I think there could be a movement against this stuff. I think it's coming. And that's where, that, that's where my only hope is. Because these kids are addicted to the phones. Yeah, absolutely. It's an addiction. It's a dopamine addiction. Yeah. And I would say quite a destructive one. And um, yeah, and I, I, let's, let's hope, and, and this could be a seed of ideas in terms of disconnecting. And I think there are people who are like younger people who are taking these, you know, disconnect uh, holidays or something like that, where they don't use the phone. And I have to say, just from personal, like what you said, with giving up the smartphone, I, I gave up most of social media. And I find that it is uh, much better for my productivity, my concentration. I don't have to think yeah. about all these people are texting me or uh, writing comments. And it's just so much, so much of a lighter feeling. Oh, yeah. I gave up Twitter last summer. Um, and then I just got back into it recently because I, I just released a film. So I had to, you know, you do a lot a podcast you have the post and everything but i, I did kind of a, a twitter light and then actually once i finished most of the podcast i just made a post saying you know i'm done thank you all very much i really support your support but i'm out of here um and i think like you know i had an idea this is just a crazy idea but maybe somebody out there listening will listen to this mm-hmm. imagine a club you created a really cool club and it was big. And one of the things you had to do, there was no Wi-Fi in the club, no newspapers in the club. 
no media in the club. You had good music. You went in. One area you could have coffee. One area you could have a few cocktails. The other area, you know, vegan pizza, for example. And you just hung out. Something like that, I think, could catch on. And I think people would find it like a release. Yeah, like a no phone party. Yeah, yeah. And it was a no phone club, that there are no phones in this club. And there's no Wi-Fi in this club. Nothing. And you go I, in and you just interact with people. Yeah, I think they, I think they do that in uh, some comedy clubs. If I recall, uh, I, I visited a comedy club and they had this like bu uh, buckets where you could put your phones. And I thought that was amazing. Yeah. And, uh, and, and yeah, I, I, I agree. I think that, uh, I think that people could try it out. There's, uh, there's good reasons to, to, to take a break. Yeah, and so definitely I would agree. And I have to say, Robert, like one of the books that I, um, and I, I, in throughout my life, I've had these strange, uh, strange coincidences and works of art, works of, you know, books, including your films, by the way, uh, which were suggested to me uh, by the algorithm. Uh, but I, one of the books that I uh, that fell upon my lap was a book called Four Arguments for the Elimination of Television. I don't know if you've um, if you've ever read that book or or heard of it. What's the name of it again? It's called The Four Arguments for the Elimination of Television by Jerry Mander. Ah, okay. No, I've never read it. Oh, I and and for all the listeners, I struck this book is a little bit dated. It's from 1978. And it is a extremely philosophical book, and it basically plays upon what I what I mentioned about the the Marshall McLuhan's uh, saying, you know, the medium is the mode. And in this book, uh, Mander talks about you know the medium of television and how it presents certain realities and ways that we take in too much information all at once. And he also goes into the topics about the formation of narratives, as, as you do, but also common um, this this common consciousness, which is almost uh, driven into us. He talks about even ideas about altered states of consciousness, so like psychedelics and how like indigenous cultures relate to altered states versus a very Western, you know, um, escapism or taking substances to, to feel just pleasure and how altered states should connect, you know, connect us to reality, not disconnect us. But anyways, this is just a, a, a book and I recommend it to you as well, Robert, just um, mm -hmm. for future reference. And, uh, and I will ask you now with, with this, like, in, in terms of books that the most influential books that have impacted you for your work, could you mention a few or works of art? Sure. Um, you know, I, I think there was somebody wrote an article once. They talked about books have a, an expiration date on age. And, and I really believe that. 
For example, I remember in my early teens, madly in love with some girl. I read The Sorrows of Young Werther, and I was like, oh, you know, by Goethe, this is, this is the greatest book ever. Mm-hmm. Then you read, you know, Stendhal, you know, The Red and the Black, these types of books. You know, there, there's a certain time to read a book, but you have to read the book in that period of time. You know? That said, I think one of the most influential books I read was um, Memories, Dreams, and Reflections by Jung. Mm, okay. Not because it's the most profound of his books, but I read it when I was 16 or 17 or something. And I remember in my 40s, when I started to understand the later Jung, Aeon and the Mysterium and those books, I realized that the, those seeds had been had been sown and, and finally there, there, something was coming up at it. Um, for me, seeing blue, I guess I saw blue in the early 90s, Kieslowski's blue. And when I saw that, I had always been a, a, a very big uh, fan of cinema. But when I saw blue, something clicked in me. And I, I, I remember thinking, this is the aesthetic in cinema that, that I've always been looking for. And Kieslowski has been an enormous influence on me. Tremendous, tremendous influence made, on me. He made the series, right? It was a series of films that was the like red, blue. Is that the correct one? Right. He made, um, he made, it went in, it went in the order of blue, red, uh, white, and then red. The three right. symbols of the, the French flag, right? The French flag, yeah. Liberté, yeah. Uh, Liberté. Uh, Galite. Galite, yes. and um, I think justice is the last one no? Um, no I think it's uh, uh, liberty for liberty fraternity and equality exactly Galite. that's it that's yeah. it exactly liberty fraternity and equality yes and in love and funny the last one was red was uh, fraternity no? mm-hmm. those three and of course the decalogue his decalogue is absolutely brilliant. He made that in Pol- for Polish television. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's a lot of other films. And, and The Double Life of Veronica, I think, could be considered maybe his masterpiece. I haven't seen it. Um, uh, he, he was an enormous influence on me. All the works of Jung were, were very, very important. Um, as, a, as far as prose go, it's not very original, but Hemingway's prose, I always love. Mm. And I wound up living in Spain for many years, and I loved his prose. Now, when I go back and read Hemingway now, it, it's, it's a little bit different, the, the, the relationship with it. But the prose is still magnificent. You know? Yeah, and then you made a good point. Of course, you're not the same, uh, you're not the same man. You never stepped into the same water twice as, as they say right yeah yeah you know right. and and so you know it, it's difficult when uh, the films of Bergman were important to me I think uh, uh, most of them had a really big impact on me mm-hmm. but I've read a lot you know and yeah. when you've read so much like it's really hard to go back and <laughs> but I'd say that that's a that's a that's a those are a few books that had now, lately, lately, I've gotten really into um, 
advisor. So, for example, um, Who Am I by Nisar Gadatta was has, has been a powerful book for me. Um, those types of books. And lately, I've been very much on the, on the Advaita path. Advaita, yes, yes. It's fascinating. It's the basic path of non-duality. Mm-hmm. Exactly, exactly. As it is uh, known. And I, it's, it's funny because I, I always felt a strong attraction to the uh, so-called most dualistic tradition, which is the Zoroastrian path. And, but, you know, oh, there's... interesting. Well, I mean, there's this notion that the, the dualism is only is only um, like useful in this realm in the day-to-day life, but beyond, you know, the greater reality is beyond dualism. But dualism can be can be useful to you know to create more morals, and some morals have no need for human law. Like I think intrinsically, humans have some sense of right and wrong. Like about you know not infringing on others i think that we are yeah i I think that's that's instinctual but that could be a controversial statement and and it is important from do you remember in twilight of the archives where i show i show a clip of of campbell discussing that idea of it's a condes- there's a condescension of the infinite to the mind of man, and that's what we see as God. Mm-hmm. And of course, God is a dualistic concept because there's, there's us and there's God. But yeah. Some even time is, is the infinite through the mind of man we yeah. see as thoughts in time. In perception, we see as space. So this whatever you want to call it, this reality that we experience through this body is a dualistic reality. So we experience, how can we say it, everyday reality, let's say, in dualistic terms. There's no escaping it. Mm -hmm. But fundamentally, when you look for those lines, that's the interesting thing about the non-dualist. When you, when you go out and you say, well, where does here end and there begin? Where does now end and the next moment begin? You get, it gets a little fuzzy. <laughs> right, right, right. And mm-hmm. yeah, and this, there's this notion, uh, I, even in uh, Judaism, the, the idea of hachad, which is, unity but it's like the unifying the oneness of all and uh, it's beyond it's it's a it's beyond words so yeah that's a that's a very fascinating point and and also the the notion of i who are you like how do you define um yourself right you're you as a conscious being experiencing the world uh where's that i and and uh i think that Often we, there is no I, right? There's, there's multiple things we do. Uh, there's things we've been implanted, like things that have been planted in our minds. But ultimately we are the stranger in the mirror as the late, uh, late friend of mine, Bob Levine in uh, California had in his, his book. I don't know if you've read that, Stranger in the Mirror. Uh, no, no, I haven't. Who, who wrote it? 
uh, Robert Levine, who was a, okay. he was a social psychologist and he unfortunately passed away a year ago. And he was, uh, he was a very, very, very kind man. And he was interested in uh, kindness around the world and culture and also the notion of self and how we like, how we really know so little about who we are, like, or if, if it's even useful to use this notion of the I, right? Um, do going, you do psychoanalysis? Uh, I don't do psycho, I'm not trained as a psychoanalyst, but I read a lot of psychoanalytic work and I do counseling, yes. You do counseling, yes. Because I've often wanted to ask, uh, in recently, you know, that I've gotten into the Advaita path. Yeah. How deep, when people talk about their I and their narratives, how deep do you push them to find out who that I is? Hmm. Well, me personally, I, I work primarily with the narratives, as you said, like the functional narratives mm -hmm. and, um, you know, trying to be adaptive in day-to-day -day life. And some people, you know, there's, it depends on the person because some people are much more introspective than others. And, mm -hmm. you, you know, you have, you know, people who may just want to get rid of their, you know, their obsessive thoughts or be better husbands or, uh, you know, things like that, and others who do want to go a little bit more deep. But generally, uh, this notion of the I or the self is always in relation to other people, to uh, emotions. And uh, mm -hmm. so that's the thing, like, uh, you can ask me personally, if I do I believe in the essence, because I talked about essence before. And I do believe in, in a soul, for example. And I, I know a lot of my colleagues don't believe in such things, but I believe in, 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 a, in a soul. I even believe in reincarnation. Um, but again, this essence is, is not what we think we are. I always say the concept of ego is who we think we are. I never say it's who we are. It's cool when we could present our various parts or personas we present. But in terms of going deep into the eye, I find actually that uh, going back to Asajoli and psychosynthesis, I don't know if you, you're familiar with the exercises that- A little you, bit. Yeah, like the, uh, the D, uh, what, what is that, that one uh, where you de detach, like you say, for example, I have this emotion but I'm not this emotion or I have this thought, but I'm more than my thoughts. And it's like you, you detach and then you reconnect just to let you understand that, you know, th these, these collections of parts of yourself are, are, are just aspects of you, of, of who you present to be, but the deeper I is ultimately uh, the soul and some and how would you that I'm asking mm -hmm. you like you take it as uh, like something that's not useful or not there or how do you see it? I would say I'm someone who's kind of in the process so I, my ideas aren't clear but mm -hmm. of late what I've 
done is I'm looking for that I. I see it. I see it intertwined with many, many narratives. Many narratives. But as you deconstruct the narratives, because I think one of the problems we have are irrational narratives. And, and, and I just have a, I have a simple test for people sometimes. I say, look, if you have a narrative that you can check two boxes in, one, it's irrational. So it doesn't really make logical sense. And two, it's not helping you then it's time to, you know, jettison that narrative. Now, maybe it could be irrational, but it's helping you. Then, you know, leave it alone if it's making you happy. But if it's not, if it's not rational, it's not helping you, you know, get rid of it. And then sometimes you'll find the ones that are making you happy, you realize, well, are they really making me happy or are they kind of covering something up? So when a narrative doesn't, isn't rational, it isn't making you happy, it's time to jettison them. And what happens is eventually you lose a lot of narratives. And when you lose the narratives, where does that eye go? Does it exist beyond those narratives? That's, it's a question I'm, I'm still grappling with. Definitely. Yeah. That's, and that's a very deep point. And I think that's one of the important topics from your film like uh you know when we lose and we, we also have all these illusory um narratives that we use to fill this existential void um you know you mentioned money and and the how how much uh, money has been used as a existential band-aid or how would you how would you call it and and uh, you know i don't want to open up the can of worms about the monetary um yeah theory because it's really not my field so I, I fully I don't fully grasp it but uh, I did have this idea of debt and that economy and how much and I know this and when I when I say certain things uh, I do a lot of work to detach or to decondition certain words and then take them and try to put them in their original sense so when I say uh, for example debt economy in terms of what people have done for us and what uh, kind of like uh, what kind of that uh, in terms of emotion and uh, how, how, how much gratitude we should have to people. I think that that type of debt economy is important to realize, you know, the importance of gratitude and the interconnection yeah. we have. Now, in terms of- the And debt just to touch on it, just to yeah. touch on it, just, I promise, I won't go too, too deep in it, okay. but there is a sense of money as work. Yeah. Now, we, we, certain types of work we say you can monetize and other types of work we don't monetize. But if we could just examine that, and I don't, I don't mean to do it here, but if we just examine that a little bit, if we were able to monetize work that today we don't monetize, we probably could create a society that had a lot less scarcity. Hmm. And we could unleash 
an enormous amount of human activity that could be compensated with some new form idea of work. And this is not, I, I want to make this clear, this is not some socialist, communist, no, 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 not at all. It's, it's nothing against private property or what's yours or what's mine. It's just a way of saying there are different ways we can create money other than just going to a bank and, and writing a loan and signing a promissory note. There could be other ways to create money and this could create a, a more abundance and more security in our society. But we have this belief in what money is. And if we, if we just examined it a little bit as a society, I think we could make, I'm not promoting any kind of utopia, but we could make a society that was a little bit easier on us, you know, a little bit softer. That, that sounds- um, And I think it's possible that we have this deep ingrained idea of what money is, and it really doesn't match the reality. Yeah, and you go into that in the film, which is very interesting, but I'll just share a quick anecdote with you that made me realize quite a bit about the type of system we live in. Um, when I was in Sicily, I visited Sicily a few years back, and I was walking down the street uh, with uh, my sister and some friends, and we had, uh, or I had somebody approach me, it was a street vendor, and the street vendor was selling oranges. Mm -hmm. And he had like real beautiful oranges. And he was saying that, you know, they were quite cheap. And I said, well, why are you, you know, why are you selling them so cheap? And, you know, he said, well, we have to burn a part of our crop every year so that the prices are maintained. So it's basically like in, in Italy, and I think it's everywhere. But if you have too much of something like milk, you have to, the farmers are paid to burn the product or throw it away. And even that to me is like, uh, even for people who believe in free market, that's not free market, right? All right. All right. And oh, uh, I remember that in Spain where I lived in Spain and peach and peach farmers were have too many peaches. And so what they would do is they would allow sheep farmers to come in and have the sheep eat the peaches because there was no market for them <laughs> you know i mean there's 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 ways where we, we could adjust things and i don't mean revolution violence anything like this just some adjustments that could really make us on a more abundant a little bit more a little bit more abundant a little bit more happy a little bit less violent i think these things are possible and uh how would the archons uh, survive in that system? <laughs> I think what we have to do is in this new myth that, we, that, that emerges, we have to engage the archons because in the end, we are the archons. Hmm. We're the archons. If we spend most of our leisure time on a phone, what we're doing is we're commoditizing our free time, which is sent. We're like the batteries in the matrix, sending all of this data to Silicon Valley, which in turn is used, sold, and <laughs> sent back to our little gadgets to sell us things, manipulate, manipulate us, et cetera, et cetera. So I, I think part of it is engage them because they're humans too. They have children. 
they want to live in a in a more just more peaceful society i think this idea that the archons are these evil beings or controlling the world this is nonsense we are the archons and once we can free ourselves i think it, it there's a something could happen where it would spread like a virus like a good virus mm -hmm. but it begins with us yeah, that's a beautiful message, and I, I, I really like it. And I, I also think it's it's uh, it has its Jungian essence again in terms of Jung. He didn't like to have these uh, absolutist uh, ideals of what is good and what is evil. We all have some good. We all have some evil within us, right? We have our shadow. We have our virtues and vices. So, yeah. Now. Uh, Robert, I think this is a, a good place if you want to like close it up and, and give the listeners some uh, a little bit about your your films, where to find it, what uh, sure. what you recommend or, or what uh, what you're conveying in these uh, films, and maybe if there is some kind of if this is the message, like we are the archons, let's create a new um, way of uh, living more harmoniously. What, what's your message here? Yeah, in, in 2016, I had the idea for two films. And one of them was just this review of the 21, basically the, the 21 major arcana of, of the tarot and show that there, there is a path, a spiritual path to awakening and one way to explore it, one way of many, is through the major arcana of the tarot. So it's, it's really a journey. And that's what I think the beauty of the film is, is it incorporates a lot of things beyond the tarot. So for people who love cinema, like good music, um, and you get the essence of the, arch of the archetype. So it's an interesting exploration of the archetypes. Mm -hmm. And then Twilight of the Archons is a little bit different because what it, I think it, it, it's more of a social message. Yeah. But what I realized is by the time I got to the end of the, the, of the 21 Faces of God, I understood that the, the bottom line here is consciousness. And so then in Twilight of the Archons, I try and make the case that who we really are is that conscious field, you could call it, or that sense of awareness in which we exist. So the two are connected, I think, in a way. Hmm. Um, I would recommend watching the 21 Faces of God first and then moving on to Twilight of the Archons. And... Um, it's all on the YouTube channel. So if you just pop my name into YouTube, you'll find the, the uh, YouTube channel, which is Cactus Land. And um, there's a ton of interviews. I've got like 30-something interviews. So if you want to hear me blabber on about all sorts of topics, there's quite a few <laughs> interviews there too. So, Absolutely. And so, where can I have a, a blog, The Cactus Land, that has a lot of my writings, mm -hmm. so novels? It's all yeah. there. And I will put the I will put the um, the links 
in the show notes as well, where to find you and uh, your work and, and uh, your books, etc. So, um, Robert, thank you so much for being here and thank, thank you all the listeners. And uh, I strongly recommend you check out uh, Robert's films. They are quite beautifully made and uh, have a very positive message and uh, a deep message. So Robert, thank you so much for your time. Thanks so much for having me on. I really enjoyed uh, speaking with you. It was a real pleasure. Great, thank you.